Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. Thank you, Jordan, for that prayer. Thank you, band, for leading us in that time of worship. Just sang some beautiful songs, and it was a joy to do that with you this morning. I want to say welcome, church. I'm glad that you've decided to join us for worship this morning. I want to say welcome to everybody who's joining us uh, online via live stream. Um, We are glad that you've decided to join us for worship as well. And uh, we hope to see you soon. Um, if, you have, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is James Valet, and I am the discipleship pastor and church planning resident here at Redeemer Church. And um, I am excited to be up here with you this morning. I'm excited every opportunity I get to preach. I'm grateful that Pastor Jason, while he's in town, he wants to worship with his family. It's important that he takes time to do that, and that's setting a great example for us. Even our pastor values worshiping in the church with his family. So grateful that I have the opportunity to preach this morning. I wanted to be the first to say happy 4th of July to you, but David beat me to it. So I'll say happy Independence Day to you. Um, While America is not perfect, um, I am very grateful to live in a nation where we have so many freedoms. Um, I'm grateful that we have the freedom to gather in this church this morning, week in and week out, to worship Jesus. Not to worship America, to worship Jesus. But we're grateful for America, and we're grateful for the freedom and the independence that we have. So happy Independence Day. I'm glad that you're with us this morning and not traveling. Uh, The the text that we're going to be looking at this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And this text, honestly, gave me a run for my money this week. It was difficult, but the truths found in this text are extremely practical and applicable to everyone's, all of our lives today. And not only that, this passage answers some, some, some fascinating worldview questions that we're going to look at at the end. So, like I said, our text, I'm going to give you some context of Romans and and review that here in a minute. Let's go ahead and read our text. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. This is what the word of the Lord says. For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Before we get into that, let me give you some background of where we've been in Romans. If you're just joining us, we've been, we are smack dab in the middle of a sermon series, walking through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in chapter 8, and there are 16 chapters, so we're right in the middle. And uh, what Romans is, is this book in our English Bibles is actually a letter that was written by a man in the first century, the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this letter to the Christian church that was gathering in the city of Rome. And he wrote it to them to explain to them the gospel or the good news of Jesus that he preached. And so far in Romans, we've seen just a brief review, chapters 1 through 5, Paul establishes that everyone, every single human is a sinner by nature, we're born sinners and we're sinners by choice, and we're, desperate, and we're in desperate need of justification. And justification only comes through faith in Jesus, not by the works of the law, by trusting in Christ and what he did. Chapters 1 through 5, focus on justification. Then in chapters 6 through 8, he switches gears. He, he doesn't talk so much about justification, but he talks about sanctification. Sanctification is just the fancy word for the, the lifelong process of becoming more and more like Christ. So when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus, their sin is placed on Jesus. He paid for it on the cross, and all of Jesus' righteousness is credited to that person, and God says, you're justified. One-time act. You're justified. So, so now what? So now you begin this sanctification process, this lifelong process of becoming more like Christ, your Savior. And the more successful we are at submitting to and being led by the Holy Spirit of God, the more sanctified we will become. And that's, that brings us up to today. That's, what's Paul, that's, that's what Paul is talking about in all of Romans 8. So far in Romans 8, he showed us that what the Holy Spirit does in our life. So far, the Holy Spirit has set us free from the law. The Holy Spirit enables us to mortify sin or kill sin in our lives. And the Holy Spirit has, has, has adopted us. It's the means by which God has adopted us into his family. That's what we looked at last week. We've received the spirit of adoption And it enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we're children of God. But today, those verses that we just read, Paul seems to be elaborating on a point that he made earlier. In verse 17, Jason hit on it last week. He's like, okay, we're adopted into God's family. We're sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ, going to receive a future inheritance just as Christ did. 
And just as Christ suffered in this world, so will we suffer in this world. And that's what Paul, that's what Paul talks about in, this, in, in verses 18 through 25 that we just read. He, he teases out this relationship between present suffering and our future inheritance and the role that hope plays in that. And I would say the main point of these verses this morning, the main point of this section of Scripture is this. Hope in our future inheritance empowers us to patiently endure present suffering. So when we have a fixed hope, a fixed certainty on our future inheritance that includes glory and freedom from sin and living in the presence of Jesus forever, that that is our inheritance, and we, when our hope is fixed on that and we have that assurance, that will enable us, that will change the way we live and enable us to patiently endure suffering in this present life. Right? That is true in in all of life. When you know the outcome of a set of circumstances, it's going to change the way you approach and navigate that set of circumstances. For example, if my wife and I have been intentional to promise my oldest son, Jameson, that if he is respectful to adults, kind with his words, and shares with his younger siblings, if, if, if we promise him that, does his chores with a good attitude, then tomorrow will be rewarded with TV time and a day with friends. So if, he, he, if we promise him that and he's sure of that, he is going to be more likely um, able to patiently endure the chores that are assigned to him, respond with respect and kindness, and he'll be able to tolerate his nagging siblings more likely. Your job, think about your job. Sometimes we may go through seasons where we hate our jobs. It's like, I hate this. I don't want to go through the day in and day out grind of doing this anymore. But you've been promised a salary. You've been promised a paycheck. And so you know that that's coming. And you know that that's going to put food on the table. So that empowers you. It enables you to patiently endure the battle of the day in and day out. There's an ancient legend that, that speaks of this same thing. And Max Licato, who's a Christian author today, he retells this ancient legend this way. I'm going to read it. He says, once there was a general whose army was afraid to fight. The soldiers were frightened. They believed the enemy was too strong and the enemy fortress was too high and the enemy weapons were too mighty. The king, however, was not afraid. He knew that his army would win. But how would he convince them? So he came up with an idea. He told his soldiers that he possessed a magical coin, a prophetic coin, a coin which would foretell the outcome of the battle. On one side of the coin was the image of an eagle. On the other side of the coin was the image of a bear. If the coin was flipped, he would flip the coin, and if it landed with the eagle side up, they would certainly win. No matter who the enemy was, they would be victorious. If it landed with the bear, the image of the bear facing up, they would lose. They would lose the battle and many lives. So the army was silent as the king flipped the coin into the air. The soldiers circled around as it fell to the ground. They held their breath as they looked to see which side the coin landed on. And then they shouted with joy when they saw the eagle. The army would win. Bolstered by the assurance of victory, 
the men charged against the castle and won. And after the victory, the king showed the men the coin. It was a two-sided coin. Both sides had the image of the exact same eagle. Then Max Licato says this, Though this story is fictional, the truth is reliable. Assured victory empowers the army. And that's what Paul is getting at in Romans 8, 18 through 25. He is saying, like, you have an inheritance that is fixed for you in heaven, and it is glorious, and it is coming. You can be sure of it. Not this false assurance like a king with a two-sided coin. It's the promises of Almighty God in Scripture, and you can trust that it's coming. And so knowing that is going to empower you to patiently endure the battles that whatever this life throws at you. It's going to to empower you to patiently endure suffering in the present. So this morning what I want to look at is how this passage shows us, number one, that God allows suffering. Number two, that God promises future inheritance, promises children a future inheritance. And three, that how God uses hope to empower patience. So number one, God allows present suffering. Verse 18 begins with Paul saying, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. So presently, in this present time, there are sufferings. Then he goes on to tell us who the rest of this section, who suffers. He begins by saying the whole creation suffers. In verses 19 through 22, he says, the whole creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why is the whole creation eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God? In verses 20 through 22, he tells us that it's because the whole creation is right now, currently, subjected to futility. And it groans with the pains of childbirth for the day when it will receive freedom from the curse of sin. So here, like Paul is personifying creation. Seeing Christian, uh, creation, the world, everything, is like is groaning. It's like a woman in the pains of childbirth. So let's ask these questions about this. What was the original creation like? How was it subjected to futility? And then what is creation like now? What do those pains of childbirth look like now? So the original creation was perfect. The the original creation was perfectly functioning as God has designed it to function. It was living and vibrant and free producing vegetation and promoting the flourishing of all life, plant, animal, human life, all life flourished in the original creation. That's what it was like. And how did it become subject to futility? Adam sinned, the sin of man. We read this in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. God is speaking to Adam after that original sin, and he says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So the creation is currently subject to futility. Vanity is what futility means. Because of man's sin. It's part of the curse of sin. Now creation, instead of promoting the flourishing of all life, now creation is is dying itself and itself is a killer. 
Now we see natural disasters, floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes that kill. Right? Viruses and diseases are everywhere that kill. Right? The world is, is full of these things. In fact, the universe itself is expanding. The creation right now is dying. It's groaning. All of creation suffers in the present time. It groans. But it's not final. I love what Tim Keller says about this, just pointing to the hope that's to come. The creation pains are not meaningless because the world is giving birth to a new version of itself. So Paul relates these, gro- these groans and these, 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 this suffering that the world is currently going to to labor pains. It's like the joy is coming. It's giving birth to a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns. So that's number one, is is the cold creation suffers. Then he tells us that Christians suffer. Verse 23, he says, not only does the creation suffer in the present, but he says, we ourselves, Paul included, we ourselves, those who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the reality of Christian suffering, right? Have you felt this before, Christian in the room? I remember when I realized that being a Christian did not mean that everything was going to be rosy and perfect and easy and good. Like, I remember the moment when I realized that. Like, oh, this is hard, right? While we're waiting for our future inheritance, we still groan inwardly at the presence of sin in our own hearts and at the effects of sin on our loved ones, uh, the effects of just existing in a sin-cursed world. We groan inwardly at that, right? We grieve when a loved one dies. Even as Christians, we know that if this person was a believer, we'll see them in heaven one day. We still groan inwardly as Jesus did at Lazarus's tomb. We hate to see people suffer from illnesses and disease. We hate injustice. We long for things to be made right. We hate it when we sin against the God who loves us. When we gossip, we should groan. When we slander people, we should groan. When we respond in anger and harsh words rather than love and kindness. When we fail to love our families and our friends the way that God has called us to, we should groan inwardly at that. There's physical suffering, and that's a spiritual suffering. Not only creation does experience this present suffering, but Christians as well experience this present suffering under the curse of sin, even as adopted sons and daughters of God. And I think it is fascinating that Paul presents this wonderful, beautiful reality that we are adopted sons of God. We are adopted into God's family. We have the spirit of adoption in our hearts, and it gives us the right to cry out, Abba, Father. And then he connects that, that concept, to suffering. He says, but you will suffer in this world as Jesus did. I think that's a fascinating thing that Paul connects uh, suffering with adoption. But isn't it true that every adoption behind every adoption, there's some level of suffering, There was either death or a broken home, some level of suffering, and so it is with our spiritual adoption. There will be some level of suffering connected to it. Jesus suffered in this world, and so will his co-heirs. Paul was right when he told one of the very first churches that he ever planted. In Acts chapter 14, he says, We must enter the kingdom of God through many trials. 
And he was right. That is the truth. So that's the suffering in this present, present time. It seems gloomy. It seems, it seems uh, just kind of a downer. That's what the word of God is saying right now. But we have a future inheritance to look forward to. If you're a son or daughter of God, you have a future inheritance that is absolutely incredible. And that's the second thing is that God promises a future inheritance. He promises this. While God allows present suffering, he promises a future inheritance that is far more glorious and far more wonderful than our present suffering is painful. So first, let's look at the promise of this future inheritance. It's, it's, it's implied throughout. The language that Paul uses, even creation, um, eagerly longing to see, that's like eagerly anticipating in the word hope, we'll talk about it in a minute. It's implied throughout that Paul Paul knows this is a promise of God. It's fixed and it's certain and you can be assured of it. But he specifically says it or hints to it in verse 23 when he says, we ourselves ourselves who have received the first fruits of the Spirit. Now the first fruits in the ancient world was like the very first crops, crops gathered at the beginning of a harvest before the full harvest had come. Okay, so the first fruits is like the, the first stuff that comes up, they gather it, and then with the hopes that more would come up later. It's used, the first fruits is used in many different ways in the New Testament. Here it's talking about a first part, the first part of a very large harvest. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the blessings to come. It's a promise from the Father. It's kind of like when you make a down payment on a house. A guy makes a down payment on a house. He gives something up front that guarantees that he owns that house, in a sense, presently. But when he makes that final payment, he gets to literally, really owns that house. And he can do the Dave Ramsey debt-free scream, right? It's a wonderful thing. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's a promise from God. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's coming. It's a promise of God. Your inheritance is coming. Eagerly, when the language of creation, when it says it's eagerly longing to see, and when it says hope, when Paul talks about hope in verses 24 and 25, he's not talking about like we wish for this, like we hope this happens, like I hope I get this job, like it's a 50-50 toss-up, like I may get it, may not happen. No, it's like it's a fixed. It's more of an anticipation, like I can't wait till this happens rather than is this going to happen or not. Sometimes we use hope in in that way. It reminds me of the very first Texas A&M fighting Texas Aggie football game I ever went to. Yeah, I know I get one. All right. I remember my dad, I was about nine or 10 years old. I remember my dad taking me down to the ground level, to the tunnel where the football players were going to come out. And I was so excited because he had built it up. He's like, they're huge. It's staggering. Like, it's awesome. They're glorious. And of course, I obviously grew up in an A&M home, both my parents and both my sisters. And so uh, I was very excited to see this A&M football team came out. And that eagerly longing actually literally means craning the neck. So it's like I was 
creation, it's craning its neck, like waiting to see what's going to happen. And I was craning my neck, waiting to see those football players came out of the tunnel. And I wasn't wondering, are they going to come out and play this game? It never crossed my mind. I knew they were. I was just waiting to see them. And they came, and they were huge, and it was glorious. And I think we lost. Uh, but that's, that's, it's a promise of God. That's number one, is, is our future inheritance is a promise of God. Now, let's look at some characteristics of it because it says some wonderful things about this as well. Verse 18, Paul refers to this future inheritance as the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, it is the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, Paul calls it the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's fascinating to think. Glory, the word glory and glory itself is usually only to be attributed to God. He says, my glory I will not share with another. But in his kindness and in his wisdom, God has chosen to justify us, to sanctify us, and to glorify us one day. One day we will be glorified. So what is glory? That's a Christian word that gets thrown around a lot. And people have tried to define it for 2,000 years. And I think... Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis get pretty close. They, and most agree, that glory is something that is beautiful and weighty and has substance to it. It's something that is real. In the, in, in the fullest sense of that word, real, glory. So our future inheritance includes a coming glory that we will take part in. There will be glory given to us. We will be glorified. And it's so powerful that when it comes, we will bring creation along with us. The crea- when we are glorified, we will bring creation with us into a new, renewed, reconciled, redeemed reality. It's going to be magnificent. We will be finally and fully conformed to the likeness of God's Son. We will be able to live holy like Jesus. We will be as beautiful as Christ. God will glorify us. That's part of our inheritance that we get to look forward to. Verse 23, he adds to it. He says this future inheritance is called our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's puzzling. How can we be longing for our adoption as sons and yet presently already adopted as sons. What Paul is getting at here is this, if you're not familiar with it, this already but not yet kind of tension in regards to our salvation. There's a sense in which believers can know now, all those who've trusted in Christ can know now that they have been legally adopted by God. They are sons and daughters of God now. One-time act, done. It's accomplished When you trusted in Jesus, he chose you from the foundation of the world. And when you trusted in Christ, it was realized, legally adopted into God's family. But at the same time, we wait currently till the day when Christ returns and we get to fully enjoy and experience all the benefits of that adoption. Does that make sense? It's already happened, but it's not yet fully manifested. Christ, when he died on the cross, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. And yet we still sin. And Satan still tempts us, and we still die. So he's already defeated those things, and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. 
but it's not yet fully realized in what it will be. When Christ returns in glory, it will be. So that's what Paul's getting at here, and specifically he's talking about the redemption of our bodies, which he talks about more in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we don't have time, but I would love to read that. Uh, I encourage you to go check it out. It's wonderful. He talks about the redemption, the glorification of our bodies, the renewal of our bodies. Part of our inheritance is that we're going to receive new glorified bodies that will last forever, that will enable us to enjoy being in the presence of Jesus, that will enable us to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth forever. No aging, no gray hair, no Botox anymore. All of those things. It's going to be glorious. That is part of our inheritance. God promises us all of this as our future inheritance, and it is a glorious inheritance. So you say, okay, I get, I get present suffering. I've experienced that. I get the idea of this future inheritance. So what does that have to do with my life today? Like, how does that change the way that I live today? Well, that brings us to point three. God uses hope to empower patience. God uses hope in our future inheritance to empower his people to patiently live their day-to-day lives. Verses 24 through 25, Paul says that it's in this hope, in this hope in what we do not see. We can't see our future inheritance. We didn't literally see Jesus hang on the cross and come back to life. But we hope in what we do not see. It says it's in this hope in what we do not see that we were saved. And it's in this hope that we eagerly wait our future, that we eagerly wait for our future inheritance with patience. When you know that victory is coming, right, it's going to change the way you approach those battles. When I know that my inheritance is secure in heaven, when frustration comes, it's going to empower me and enable to me, enable me to respond with grace and kindness rather than anger. When I know that my inheritance is secure in heaven, Right? and I'm slandered or gossiped about, misunderstood, I'll be empowered to endure that with meekness. I won't have to defend myself. When sorrow comes, and I know that people in this room have experienced sorrow that I know nothing about, heartbreaking sorrow. But when sorrow comes, if you know that your inheritance is fixed in heaven, you'll be able to endure that with patience that will minister to people around you and will testify to the goodness of God in the midst of sorrow. God uses hope to empower patient living. So how do we cultivate this hope? How do we cultivate this hope that's going to empower patience? Three, three, three ways. Number one, Consider first, first step is consider what your hope is in. That's where you start. Right now, reflect. Think to yourself, like, what is my hope in? What is the one thing that if it was taken from me, I'd be destroyed, be devastated? If that is a relationship or an object or money or a career status, then that's what your hope is in. If it's anything other than, then 
Christ and the coming inheritance, then your, your hope is, in, is, is on a faulty foundation. Guys, men typically, this is an overgeneralization, I know that these cross over, but men typically find their identity and place their hope in their careers and their possessions. We just have a natural inclination to do that. Women typically place their identity and their hope in things like relationships and image. Yeah, like I said, I know that's an overgeneralization. Over but the point is, like, identify what your hope is in, whatever that is, so that you can pray against that and fight against that and focus to fix your hope on the future inheritance. There was a time in my life, um, I share about this, many of you are familiar with this, but I was saved. Um, the Lord saved me and gave me a new heart and a new spirit at the beginning of what turned out to be an 18-month prison sentence. I got saved in Midland County Jail on my way to prison for I didn't know how long. And at the beginning of that, there was times when I was looking at up to 10 years in prison. I had no idea how, how long I was going to get. I was hoping for something short, but I was hearing things that were making me think it was going to be long. And, and I just remember a moment when God gave me a supernatural just peace. He just, he just reminded me that he had adopted me into his family. Like I was a son of God. And he just brought me to a place. I think I said it to my dad on the phone. I think I said these words, but I remember thinking them, and I think that I said them. I said, you know, I've, God has brought me to a place where if he doesn't bless me with one more material blessing for the rest of my life, if I spend the rest of my life in here, I don't ever get to see my son, and I don't ever get to have a family or see my family again, if I never get to become a productive member of society ever again, God is good. God is good. He has forgiven my sin, adopted me into his family, clothed me with the righteousness of Christ, and I know one day I will spend eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin and no more sadness and no more suffering and no more sorrow, and no one could take that away from me. No judge, no jury, no prison guard. No one could take that from me. At that point in time, my hope was fixed on the right object. Now, I want to couple that with admitting, right, realistically, there have been many times since then that my hope has not been fixed on that correct object. There's been many times that I have found myself placing my hope in the things of this world and things that are fading away and things that they should not be placed in. But I remember that moment. That was a sweet time in my Christian life, and I long for it. And this passage has encouraged me to focus on that and pursue that. When we fix our hope on the right object, we're empowered to patiently endure suffering. Number two, compare the present with the future. Paul says at the very beginning of this, he says, for I consider. That's like a mathematical term. He's like saying, I have logically solved this equation, and this is the conclusion that I've come to. Engineers, you like this. Yeah, he's saying like, hey, I figured this out. I solved this. The present suffering does not compare to the future glory. The future glory is far more, far more glorious. 
It's far more weighty. This is light and momentary. Some characteristics about the present suffering. Let's compare the two. Present suffering. Here's some truths about present suffering that will help you compare them. Number one is that God is sovereign over suffering. And that's good news. God is in control of all things, even suffering. And that is good news. All things happen according to the will of God. And often that includes human suffering, our suffering, the suffering of his sons and daughters. And sometimes that's, well, that's ne- never pleasant. And, and, and we should pray to be delivered from it as Jesus did. Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. And, and when we're in the midst of that, we think, how could God ever bring anything good out of this? This is terrible. Nothing good could ever come from this. And yet God promises that he will, and he does. And he doesn't just promise us that with words. He showed us that in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered. Was God in control when Jesus suffered his entire life and then at the end of his life was nailed to the cross? Was God in control of that? Yes. God was in control of every moment of that. It was fulfilling prophecy every moment that every bit of suffering that Jesus endured. God was sovereign over that and he's sovereign over our suffering as well. The alternative is hopeless. The alternative does not give us any hope. There is no God, therefore suffering is meaningless. That's one option. There's no God. So suffering is meaningless. It is what it is. It's what you, it's what you get. Or God is in control of everything but suffering. He wants to. He wants to relieve you of that. He just can't. He just can't. That's not hopeful. Then who is in control of my suffering? Who is sovereign over my suffering? Satan? It's not comforting. Sinful men? That's not comforting either. Fate? I don't even think that's real. The good news in suffering to me is that I know a God, that I am loved by a God who is so big and so powerful that he can take some of the most sorrowful, dark moments of my life and turn those into things that bring glory to his name, ultimately good to me even though I don't understand it, and eventually joy to my heart. My only comfort in suffering is know that any suffering that comes my way, that comes into my life, has passed through the hand of my loving father first. God is sovereign over suffering. Next, present suffering has a purpose. We're told in this passage that it produces hope and patience. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4, that it prepares us for ministry. Present suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, all, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, in our suffering. God comforts us in our suffering so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God comforts us in our suffering, and that prepares us to comfort others when they're suffering the same thing. It prepares us for ministry. It prepares us for heaven. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says this, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think the theologian 50 Cent said, Joy wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't for pain. Heaven is going to be so much more delightful because of the suffering that we've endured here. 
We're going to enjoy heaven so much more because of the pain and the suffering that we went through to get there. Those are some things that are true about the present suffering. It's light. It's temporary. Now let's look at the future inheritance, not to go over it again. Based on what we know about this present suffering, comparing it to our future inheritance, which is heavy, it's glorious, it's real, it's eternal. It doesn't compare. It includes you finding satisfaction for your soul. You having 100% joy in your heart all the time forever. There's nothing better than that. It doesn't compare. So in the midst of suffering, it's hard to do this. It's hard to compare present suffering with the future glory. So prepare now. Now, think about that one thing that's the object of your hope. The things that you love and tend to idolize and find your identity in. If those things were to be taken away from you, just compare it now. It still doesn't compare to the future inheritance that's coming. Now that empowers us to patiently endure this life. Number three, how can we, how can we cultivate this hope in order to patiently endure suffering? Be confident that God will keep his promises. Be confident that God will keep his promises. God is faithful. God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 17 says this, it is impossible for God to lie. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the veil. We just sang about this in the first song we sang, Christ Alone, Cornerstone, like my anchor holds within the veil. As you go through suffering, remind yourself, be confident that God keeps his promises. You can endure this and you have a future inheritance that's coming. So fix your hope on the future inheritance. Fix your hope on the inheritance that God has stored up for you. And you'll be empowered to endure present suffering with patience. So Christian, I want to encourage you about the future inheritance that you have. Think on that. Reflect on that. I want to challenge you to live patiently today in present trials, in present suffering. But I also, I want to invite you now to zoom out and look at the scope of this text with me. Look at the scope of this text. I marveled at it. Like, look at everything. We have the fall, and we have uh, the, the future inheritance. We have the fall and the consummation. And then in the middle, we have sin and salvation and adoption and suffering. This text, these eight verses pre- present a the Christian worldview. They present the entire Christian worldview. Everyone know what a worldview is. A worldview is just a basic a set of assumptions, a set of beliefs that you hold without even really thinking about them. It's a set of beliefs that you hold in which you, through which you interpret the world. Every world. Everyone has a worldview. Is this yours? Right? A worldview has to answer at least these questions like, how did I get here? How did all this stuff get here? Why are there things instead of nothing? How did I get here? Who am I? What went wrong with this place? What's my purpose? Where is, what's the purpose of life? Where is all of this going? Like, what's the end of all things? Where's all this headed? And this verse answers all of these. Why am I, how did I get here? I was created by creator God. What's wrong? Sin came into the world. Who am I? I'm either an adopted son of God or I'm not. I'm separated from God. 
Why am I here? To glorify my Father through patiently enduring suffering. What's the point of all this? Our inheritance is coming. Glory is coming. Christ is coming. We have a hope. Just marveled at this as it, as it gave me trouble this week. These eight kind of obscure verses, certainly I would say the most obscure verses in Romans chapter 8. I saw the wisdom of God and the consistency of the Christian religion. So Christian, leave here filled with hope, empowered to live patiently, marveling at the God who gives you this hope and who inspired this word for us this morning. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, say I've never trusted in Jesus, I have no idea what any of this stuff is talking about, don't you want to become one? Don't you want to know who you are and why you're here? Don't you want purpose for your life? Don't you want to know that you have an inheritance like this stored up for you, waiting for you? Don't you want to know, have power to navigate this crazy, broken world? I would invite you to become a Christian. And how you do that is simple. You turn from your selfishness, your self-gratification and your pride. You turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus. And when you turn from your sin, repent of your sin and trust in Christ, God will adopt you into his family. He will put the first fruits of his spirit into your heart and he will change you. He'll give you this hope. He'll give you this hope. And he'll empower you to live with patience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have adopted us into your family. God, as children of God, we just are grateful that we can come to you as your sons and daughters. We worship you as our perfect Father in heaven. God, we pray that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray that we would hope for that day. You are the God of all hope. May you give us joy and peace and patience as we endure the present sufferings of this life. May you fill our hearts with hope through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, if there are people in this room who don't know you, I pray that you would break their hearts. I pray that your word, your spirit would work through your word. God, it says, your word says that, your word says that it is a hammer that crushes rock. If there are any hearts of stone in here, I pray that that your word would, would break their hearts. And I pray that they would see their need for Jesus and I pray that they would trust in him with their entire lives. And I pray that they'd be made new this morning. God, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Pray that you were glorified this morning. We worship you because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.